expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Welcome, nerds and nerdettes alike, to episode 85 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, where I'm sure Power Girl is sitting at home wondering, why doesn't Jeb Bush think I'm hot too? <laughs> he probably does, but she's probably sitting there waiting and thinking, when am I going to get my own series? I know, when's that going to happen? Or maybe we'll see her in Supergirl at some point. I'm James with him alongside with one arm nick pataglia dude I, that's the thing is too is like with power girls you gotta wonder if they're gonna bring her in at some point that would be really cool but you know congratulations to everybody over at supergirl and cbs oh, yeah. 14 million viewers 14 on premiere night million, which is funny because you look at the nfl game that was on sunday that yahoo streamed and they got like 15 million so think about it that way supergirl like just lost out to an NFL game, but it's still a big feat, though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, the NFL is king of TV. Everybody knows that. But to have that much and to retain that much of the audience oh, uh, yeah. from the Big Bang Theory lead-in, which I know was the idea on that, um, that's just great. And, of course, still competing with a half hour of Gotham as well. Yeah. I mean, that's that's very impressive. And and the show, um, everybody's seen it now, so we can, you know, we can kind of expound a little bit more on it. Of course, you can listen to our review from last week, but the show is everything you want it to be and more i think so i'm glad that uh, a lot of people got a chance to see that oh exactly i mean you remember it's moving to eight o'clock now and it's regular time after the premiere so we're gonna see how it you know how it fares and remember it's dc versus dc which is gonna be interesting yeah i still think that's a little weird but um i'm sure that there's a plan there i mean i know yeah. that they kind of hit different audiences so but you know what hey you watch one you dvr the other no harm no foul that's the society that we live in now Exactly. Speaking of watching stuff, I actually, yesterday, I watched, I was on Netflix, I was just scrolling through and seeing what was there, and I saw the um, the Back to the Future documentary, that it's called Back in Time, and I believe it was a Kickstarter that they got turned into a movie, and it was, dude, you gotta watch it, because they got everybody, at least most everybody, except for, of course, Crispin Glover and the guy who plays Biff, yeah. uh, to be in the movie, and, I mean, you got Michael J. Fox in there, and they're talking about you know, how the whole selling and trying to get made and by Universal and going to Disney and Disney wouldn't do it for various reasons. And, uh, it, you know, it's very eye-opening. It's also part of it's kind of sad because there's a part of it where they talk about the car. A lot of it, they don't, of course, they talk about the DeLorean. Like a whole section of the movie is about these people, you know, who are DeLorean lovers. Kind of like, you know how you have sneaker heads? Yeah. These are, you have DeLorean, you know, DeLorean heads, people who go out and buy DeLoreans and turn into time machines. Oh, I can imagine. And the what the sad part of it was a guy was talking about how he's on the Universal Lot Tour and he saw the time machine, DeLorean. However, it used to be featured in the front studio lot. Now, and he's like, when I went, he goes, it was in the back lot where his other, you know, cars were and it's just falling apart. It was just sad. Mm. That, was so, the same, that was the same thing that happened, I think it was on uh, some show that I, it was either Comic Book Man or another show, yeah. where they saw the uh, old Ghostbusters car, and it's just falling apart. The car from the movie was like, that is sad. It's such an iconic vehicle, and it's not being kept up by anybody. Well, not it's just, just rusting that. out, but, you know? But what was sad, too, was that, because it was at the back lot, so nobody could really see it, people were literally on the tours taking pieces off the car. What? Yeah, and that's what also led to it's just being falling apart. Like, of course, they didn't fix it up, and they just let it rust, at rust, and everything else like that. But again, people were going on the tour, and they were like literally picking Jeez, pieces man. off of boundaries. The car. People, they were picking it off to have like a memorabilia. I'm like, God, that's that's kind of disgusting. You know? I mean, I, mean, I understand you're a fan, but there's got to be boundaries somewhere. Come on, now. It's like going to the Smithsonian and taking a, you know, look at the Wash, George Washington statue, just picking out his, his teeth, you know? Yeah, let's, let's just take a dinosaur bone and see how that works out. Exactly, but again, that led to the whole restoration process with Bob Gale and a bunch of other people, and it's, they've now enclosed it like, it's now like a main part of the tour, I guess, or the studio. They have it enclosed in like a glass box now, and it's all Finally. stored, and it's all beautiful looking it's, it's fantastic but yeah go see it it's it's uh it's on netflix it's called back in time and I mean, they got huey lewis on there and talk about how you know he made the power of love and how he got signed on to do it and it was just 
it's a, it's a very phenomenal documentary. Yeah, and after you're done watching that, make sure you go back and listen to last week's show if you haven't already, so you can hear our interview with Mark Millar and Raphael Albuquerque. Man, it was just so much fun with those guys, not just talking <laughs> about Huck, but just random stuff in soccer riots, uh, weird TV ads. Soccer riots and accents and weird commercials Mark watches at like 5 a.m. when his babies are up in the morning. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was just a really great, I mean, you have a lot of laughs, get a lot of information on a great story like Huck. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to that. But Nick, we've got another big guest this week. Yes, we do, James. We have Tom Waltz from IDW. Of course, he's an editor at IDW. He's also the writer of many, many series. Yeah, but this time we're going to dive into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which just had their 50th issue. Getting on to issue 51 now, they're going to take things in a little bit different direction, so we'll talk to him about that. i got to ask him about the whole killing off Donatello thing, or at least we thought they killed off Donatello. I'm going to definitely ask him about that and what the thought process was behind that. But, I mean, Ninja Turtles is one of the hottest costumes for Halloween this year, so we figured, you know, Halloween, why not celebrate the uh, Heroes in a Half Shell this week? Exactly. Plus, you know, again, we're starting a new arc in the comics, so why not have have him on and talk about this? It's going to be a fun, fun interview. I'm really looking forward to it. And, you know, I mean, I got to ask you right now, dude, who's your favorite Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle? It was always Donatello. That's why it bummed me out so was much it, when I thought it, they killed him off. Was it because of the nerdiness? Because of his, Is that it why? Was, it was partially because of that and that he was smart, but he was still cool at the same time. I, I always liked the bow staff. People made fun of it. <laughs> I always kind of liked the bow staff. Well, I thought it was a cool weapon. Well, well, here's the thing, though, too. If you've played the original TMNT game, that one boss level against Rocksteady, if you're down yes. panel, you can just troll the shit out of that game. Yes. Like, on top of the boxes, is bow staffing him in the head, and he could use an automatic win. You wouldn't lose any life whatsoever. Exactly. I gotta go, I gotta go with Raphael, man. I mean, I know people use, like, Leonardo, but Raph was just, I just love the size. You know, I love, you know, the, the, he was the red turtle, and, and I, I just... Plus, he's one of those guys, man, where it's like, you know, he reminds me a lot of my dad, where if you piss him off, it's just, yep. you're, you're fucking that, done. That t- for you being an Italian picking Raphael, that doesn't <laughs> oh, <yeah>. surprise me <laughs> for a lot of reasons. So, I mean, but I know everybody loves Mikey and, and Leo's the, the big leader there. I, mean, I know we've got a lot of Turtles fans. We're looking forward to talking to Tom Waltz about all things Turtles. But speaking of comics, you know, we've got two new comics. This time, I swear, two new comics we're going to be reviewing next. On Down and Nerdy. Hi, this is writer Mark Miller, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds, we get out our bags and our boards and pull out our long boxes because it's time to discuss what we're reading this week. Now, last week, of course, we did the same comic. However, we went back to our old roots this week and got two different comics. Well, James, I'm going to have you kick it off this week. All right, and I decided to go the Vertigo route. Of course, they've had so many new titles come out, and one that kind of caught our fancy at San Diego Comic-Con was Art Ops. So I decided to do that this week. Number one, that's by Sean Simon. That's written by Sean Simon, I should say. Michael Allred and Laura Allred team up to kind of do the art and the colors. That's pretty cool. Todd Klein did the letters. And of course, also Michael Allred did the cover. Now, if you don't know the premise of Art Ops, it's basically actual works of art that are coming out of the frame and kind of wreaking havoc on the city. Or so we thought. Mm-hmm. It kind of starts out really cool because you've got the teams already together kind of thing. And then our museum and they're, the Mona Lisa's there. And they have to basically rip the Mona Lisa out of the frame. So it's kind of like, I think, I don't know if it's called Tom's Crown Affair or something like that. I think they steal a painting or something. I'm not sure what it is. Or a diamond. or It's it's kind of similar along those lines. There's what? a movie out that's kind of like that. Well, they're But they're literally pulling the actual Mona Lisa like the woman out of the art. Oh, no shit. Yeah, so it's Mona Lisa is a real woman and all art is actually real. It's not art. Oh, wow. So that part is very, very cool. So, so it's kind of like you went to Hogwarts and pulled the people in the paintings out of the paintings. Yes, much. exactly. Oh, it's that's amazing. Exactly like that. So, and they have, there's reasons that they have to take the Mona Lisa out. And of course, we want you to read these books. We won't go into exactly why this has to be done, but she's walking, talking, everything. And she's a little bit mouthy, but that's another, another story for another time. <laughs> um, but then it kind of takes a little bit of a turn. And, and I know that you and I have talked about this trope many, many many times it starts to take that whole guy whose mother wasn't around and he didn't know why and he ends up being a drug addict kind of thing and something happens with him and he finds out what his mom really does for a living Mm -hmm. and i mean while it wasn't bad it's like do we have to go this route 
every time, whether mother, it's the mom or the dad. Mother never loved me. The only heroin I need in my life is this needle. And what's funny is, of course, dad apparently bailed right when he was born, too. So there's there's that as well. But, I mean, there's a confrontation that kind of takes his life, uh, the, the, uh, the son's life, in a certain turn. So he still doesn't really... Uh, like his mom very much, let's put it that way, and they show you that in a flashback. And then, as we go along, something happens to the art ops team. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole team. Um, the thing that was kind of confusing for me is why they put themselves in this situation in the first place. Yeah. was a little bit odd, because the whole team was together in one area, and apparently, that, according to the story, that's not something they ever really do. But for some reason, tonight, they decided to do that. And, of course, something bad happened. Then, of course, you know, the Mona Lisa's still out there, so she's in trouble, and somebody goes to get her, and now the son's trying to get pulled back into the fold, and he's reluctant kind of thing. So, And that's kind of where the first issue ends. Now, there is a big bad in this issue. We don't know what the name of the big bad is. Uh, we don't really know what his motives are yet, but we do know that he was a part of this incident that happened with the son years ago. The big bad is modern art. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is art. It's just a pillar with it's, uh, it's, shit written all over it. It's digital art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. No, but um, I mean, it almost kind of looks like it looks like a demon thing. But I digress. Um. I guess that there wasn't really anything wrong with this book, okay? But it wasn't what I expected it was going to be. And I was a little let down because I thought it was going to be more like about rogue art and not about, I don't know, protecting art? I don't know. It's it's weird. So maybe this is just a personal hang-up for me. I, I don't know. Maybe it's, I mean, for what it sounds like, maybe it's kind of like... Art today isn't, you know, I mean, I joke about the whole modern art thing, but again, you look at what art is today and people classify it, it's like you can go to a, literally like a museum or whatever, like that, or just a gallery and be like, okay, here's, you know, a piece of art. It's like, it's just a blank canvas, like, you know, but it's right. art. It's like, but it's just a blank canvas, you know, and, and I think it's kind of falling on the lines of what is art. I think it's trying to, you know, raise the question to the reader of what do they view as art, you know, and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I don't know. And I mean, I'm, I love, don't get me wrong. The the art by Michael Allred and the colors by Laura Allred is very good. So I'm not trying to say that the art in the series is bad. It's just that I guess story-wise, this wasn't kind of what I was, I was expecting. And I guess I was hoping for a little more than the <laughs> usual trope of, you know, mommy didn't love me, daddy took off, <laughs> and now I know what mommy really does for a living and I don't approve kind of thing. Were you expecting more of like a Mona Lisa spy comic? I was kind of hoping that, like, the Mona Lisa escapes or something, and they've got to go find her sort of thing, you know? Or the scream painting goes on a rampage and screams at people all up and down the streets. I don't know. I guess I was kind of expecting something more like that. She likes her... She likes... She, 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 I can see Mona Lisa at a bar like, I like my paint, watercolor, not primer. Which is funny, because she actually tries to pick up a guy in the oh. story. But, I mean, it wasn't anything too involved. It was just an offhand kind of thing to <laughs> try and be funny. Lots of paper cuts. Pretty much, yeah, or just just paint everywhere. Just, you know, just, just everywhere. It just gets smeared all over the place. Oh, but you're you're well, imagine like you're, you're having sex with Mona Lisa, and your dick just looks like a fucking ink cartridge. It's a re- it's a real problem. Yeah, it's it's a real problem. But I mean, I don't know. I I just it wasn't what I expected, so I think this is a drop for me. Really? Yeah. It's been, yeah. Your first, it's been really your first drop in a while. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to like it, but it wasn't what I expected. It's not. It do, doesn't mean that other people won't like it, but it just right. wasn't for me. Right, well, I decided to go to the Titan Comics route this week and stay with the independents, and uh, I decided to do a, uh, a book called Johnny Red Number 1. Now, I, I feel whenever I read the title, I feel like a Chuck Berry song should be coming on any second. <laughs> Johnny be red. Yes, yes, exactly. Now, it's written by Garth Ennis, of course, from Preacher fame and everything else, and uh, Keith Burns did the art, and the colors done by Jason Word. Now, the plot is Johnny Rebel is... Johnny Rebel, Jesus, Johnny Red. Johnny Rebel was a boy. (laughs) (laughs) We gotta bring Mark Twain into it now, too. All right, yay! (laughs) Yeah. No, Johnny Red, Jesus. Um, I really do have Johnny be good stuck in my head. Uh, But Johnny Red is about an English pilot who led a Russian squadron in the Soviet Air Force 
during World War II. Interesting. Now, well, you say interesting, but here's the problem with it. Uh oh. <laughs> it doesn't pick up or get interesting until page twelve. Okay. Um, when and that's when the war flashbacks happen when you're introduced to Johnny Red and everything else. And because in the beginning, it's just there's a guy named Tony who's like gotten some money and he's trying to make this get this plane pretty much fixed up that he bought. And the thing is, the problem with the writing is. Unless you're somebody who knows planes, unless you're somebody who's been in the Navy or military, mm-hmm. and you really know much about planes, it's really – you'll get lost in the dialogue because you don't know what's going on or what's being explained. So it's like a lot of shop talk where you walk in on yeah. a couple of people that both do the same thing for a living, and there's all this like processing technology talk, and you're sitting there like, hey, whatever, it's man. It's more like – well, when it's, it's more like you know he's talking to this mechanic or whatever who's restoring this plane for him, which is going to cost him like $5 million, and he's saying like, well, you know, when planes like this get bullet holes in them, we put them in this lot and this lot has this code number on this code number means it's like i i get lost i'm like wow it's really boring i love how there's a bullet hole lot <laughs> well no well, he's that's been, great well, what's well, this chicago well, well, well what i meant by that was like he's saying this line was like you know, even your bullet holes have bullet holes and because of this kind of damage it has it's put in a certain category of plane and oh, wow. uh, and damage and restoration and everything else and da 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 and you know it's it's just like I, i'm like oh man i can't find myself speed reading through because i'm like Hopefully there's something here that's just better. You know, I mean, I really hope that. You know, it doesn't well, make sense. Well, I mean, when when you read Preacher and it's it's so good and, and I know that you're a fan of Garth Ennis's work and then you read something like this and I think just like me, I think you kind of went into it with a certain expectation and maybe that just didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, well, because it's very, it was very kind of, I don't want to say misleading, but again, you get to page 12 and the whole war thing. And that's where it really picks up, and it's really beautiful. The art is really amazing during the war scenes and the flashback scenes. are very, I mean, the the art throughout is kind of very. It's very um, cons- the same look, but something about going to the back of the war time. And remember when that music video I showed you weeks back by Gunship that fly for your oh, life? Oh yeah, yeah. The art's kind of like that, but you make it a little bit more rough looking. And it's really beautiful. It matches really well. Like the air fights are look fantastic and phenomenal, and. But, I mean, you know, my only fear is, and I talked about this with you, you know, we talk about this a lot off mic, is just the fear of a story that takes place kind of in two different eras. And the past is very in- engaging, it draws you in. Then when you get back to the 2015, where it's like they're going back to Tony, he's talking to this older gentleman about the plane, and just uh, he's talking about his old war story and Johnny Red. You know, it's just like, the only use of him is to say, oh, so he was doing this to give you like background, but it's like it really takes you out of it. It's kind of like if you read my Assassin's Creed uh, review online where I said, you know, when you're when you're back in the Salem Witch Trials time in that comic, it really feels awesome. It flows well. Then you go back into 2015. It's really rough and it just feels disjointed. That's the kind of the case right here. I fear that, you know, I want it to stay within the whole 1940s era time of war and I don't want it to be, you know, going back and forth between – you know, past and present, and the present only being used to, you know, when people sit around for a story and are kind of like, oh, so it was meant to do this. It's like, I get that. You know, I'm reading the fucking story. I don't need this character telling me, you know, wh- what exactly is going on. Right. And I mean, it's almost like you have certain movies where you'll do a scene or two scenes where you kind of set the stage of, okay, here's where we're at now, but here's what led us to this point. But you, you take that scene. And then you move on. Maybe it's 10 minutes, whatever. But in a comic, I don't feel like you can get away with that as much because, like you said, it kind of makes you not want to go forward. And then when you finally get to where you want to go, you're like, wait a minute, now I want to go back there. And you pull them back into the present. So to me, it seems like it's it's very similar to something like that. But, where you can't get away with that in comics. But my final take on this is that the art is great, even though, yes, it's takes 12 pages really for it to pick up and that the past is more intriguing than the present times the book is set in Uh this is a pickup for me because i feel that as with ennis's writing as you progress forward and move forward i think the book is going to take more of that centric 1940s tone so you think they're getting it out of the way basically i think so i think they're doing it just to i think the first issue was just written the way it was to pretty much set up like you know because this is pretty much Story is told through flashback and past memories. Right. So I think it was set to kind of get that thing of like, you know, instead of having the whole narrative, let me tell you a tale. It's more, hey, let's have this other character come in and kind of have him, 
you know, talk to this person kind of okay, thing. Okay, that makes sense. You know, but it, again, it's a pickup for me. So, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's again, it's Johnny Red number one by Titan Comics. So go pick it up, give it a few issues, see what you take about it. But I think, again, I think that the way it goes is is going to ha- it's gonna be more 1940s centric, which is great. And like I said, the art is just, when you really get into the war parts of it, uh, it's really, really astounding. But, uh, I mean, so, again, that's that's what we're doing for what we're reading this week. So we put away our long boxes. Again, I did Johnny Red number one. And, James, what did you do this week? Our ops number one from Vertigo. And, again, James says it was a drop. Mine's more of a pickup. Give it three issues. But that's going to do it for what we're reading. But coming up next is this week in Geek Tam. And, oh, man, let's just say that we got a nice trailer coming your way next on Down Nerdy. Hey, this is Courtney Lynn, a.k.a. Harley Quinn from the Harley Quinn Web Series. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Another highly anticipated Netflix series is going to be coming on November the 20th. Of course, we're talking about Marvel's Jessica Jones. And Nick, I got to tell you, this one might be darker than Daredevil. I mean, that's even possible. But like, no, I think it is. Because just because of this reason, you have an antagonist like the Purple Man, played by, oh of course, David Tennant. Gosh. Whose main power is by pretty much controlling people's minds and letting them, and telling them what to do. And what do we see in the trailer? People hanging themselves, people killing themselves. The police station thing where they've got guns I all know. pointed at each other. I'm like, my gosh, I got to tell you that it, from a trailer, I didn't usually get chills and freaked out by, you know, when they introduce villains and in trailers and stuff like that. I was genuinely creeped out by David Tennant in this trailer. I mean, he just a little bit. I can't wait. To dive into this character, man. And of course, you got a little bit of Luke Cage in there as well. And but uh, again, I like how they brought in Luke Cage as well because it's one of those things. Oh, yeah. Going to be one of those people that goes on by and sees Jessica doing something that's very superhuman esque, mm-hmm. and then he's going to track it. It's going to be interesting. That's, I like how they bring in that dynamic. They bring them two together. But again, you know, Jesus, Kristen Ritter as Jessica Jones. She, I've never read Jessica Jones. I don't know much about the character. I know a little bit. Yeah. Again, she's got that whole kind of quirky comedy that's in the right the timing is right for that but she's a badass though dude okay i'm gonna have to do something that that i need to do here so let me get this out of the way um i expressed concerns in past shows about Kristen ritter and being able to play this character and stuff like that i'm gonna i'm gonna be a man right now i'm step up i apologize to Kristen ritter you're, you're a man. You're 40. I just, uh, all my fears in one short two-minute trailer <laughs> were put to rest because, my gosh, I didn't know she had that in her. I know that she's done some other stuff that, that's been similar to this, but I didn't know she had that in her. I mean, I think that she's going to be fantastic as Jessica Jones, especially the whole, I guess, troubled past of oh, yeah. Jessica Jones. She pulls off really well. Again, the trouble past it leads off to why the purple man is the main antagonist yes. for the season. Like it's gonna be amazing, and it's just yeah. You want to talk about graphic, dude? Again, this is what happens when you put stuff on Netflix. You give them that free range, mm-hmm. and you want to know what though? I, Netflix putting this stuff on Netflix is greatly benefiting them because. Honestly, you put Jessica Jones on TV, people are saying, "Oh, really?" Kind of thing. Nobody would watch it. Well, I don't think I don't would think watch anybody it. would watch it. People watch because it's Marvel, but I think the stigma would be attached when they first announced Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Where they're like, really? Do we really want to care about a show about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Yep, like, here really? we go again, kind of thing. Can yeah. Be, yeah, one of those things. But you put it on Netflix, I gotta tell you, dude, just by watching the trailer, I, I, I just, for part of my mind, just felt like, oh, she's like on the stage of Iron Man, or she's on this kind of, kind of level, you know what I'm saying, as far as, mm-hmm. oh, she's a mainstream character. No, she's not. No, you know she's saying? not at all. But I do you that like sense. It gives you that sense of us, and I'm not saying her and Iron Man even keel. Oh no, so no, no, clarity. No. But I'm saying when you watch the trailer, it makes you feel like she's more mainstream than she really is. Yeah, definitely. And I like that they're bringing in Luke Cage, like you said now, because we know that there's a big history between Jessica Jones and Luke Cage yep. uh, later on. And I kind of like that they also went the. We're already deep into she's got her powers. She's been doing this for a while now. Uh, So she's hardened, almost like how they describe Ben Affleck's Batman for Batman versus Superman coming up. She's been doing it for a little bit now. She's hardened and, you know, she's got some stuff that's gone on in her past. Then they'll dive into that. And I mean, what direction they decide to take with that, I think is okay because 
Like you said, you don't know a whole lot about Jessica Jones. I've read some stuff. I don't know a whole lot either. But I think that's actually kind of a good thing. There's not a lot of canon that people are going to be super upset about if they decide to go one way or another. Well, exactly, because you look at different storylines and the trailers looks to be a love scene between her and Luke Cage. And again, back to Luke Cage real quick. He's going to be the next show. Yep. After Jessica Jones, I think wrap up with Iron Fist and then the Defenders. But... No, I, I, it's smart how they bring in Luke Cage. And what you've noticed that Marvel's done in past shows, like, for example, I want to go back to Rosario Dawson's Night Nurse character in Daredevil. They introduced her, and now she appears that she... We haven't seen her in a trailer, but I know this from Jessica Jones, though, that she does play more of a bigger role in we'll Jessica Jones' her. universe. Yeah, yeah, we'll see her. Than in the Daredevil universe. But, again, going back to your whole idea on canon, yeah, it's true, because now a lot of people have read a lot of Jessica Jones. You know, I mean, I, I, honestly, I want to say more people have read Guardians of the Galaxy before the movie came out. You know, being before the movie was announced, I want to say more people probably read no more about Guardians of the Galaxy than Jessica Jones. But you look at this and this whole can thing, and it's one of those things where I want to say this, as a comic book reader, we're both avid comic book fans, and that's why we do the show, it's going to be so good, so good to go into a show like this and not know anything about the character. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's good to go in raw sometimes. I mean, there's there's very little I know about Jessica Jones. I think that that's a good thing when you go into a show like this because it can make you... See, we're the kind of people that will go back oh, after yeah. seeing the show and go, wow, maybe I need to read this or that it's about Jessica that. Jones kind of thing. But you don't know, hey, maybe Marvel's thinking, let's see how Jessica Jones does, and if she does well enough, we'll release a comic for her. Yeah, exactly, and and that's kind of what Marvel's been doing. I mean, when I mean before Age of Ultron, would they have even considered giving Vision his own series? Well, no. they have, well, they have Ultimate Ultimate Vision, but I mean, I, I well, I mean, you know what I'm saying is as like a yeah. main run, you know, give him his own series kind of thing, like Marvel's kind of been doing now. I don't think they would have done that before Age of Ultron. No way. Yeah, I mean, that's it's, it's totally true. I mean, And then you go get a guy like Tom King to write it? I mean, oh, you, God, yeah. you don't just go get somebody like that if you don't want to try and make this work. But, I mean, just the overall tone of the show is going to be great. And, and I'm sorry. And, dude, just the music in the trailer. Marvel just nailed it over oh, and yeah. over again with the music in the trailer. And just the overall feel of this. I'm excited for it. Again, November 20th, it comes out. So, final thoughts, James. What's your thoughts on Jessica Jones and what do you hope to get out of it? I hope that we have a lot more of the guy that's standing over the piano and just slowly hitting one key for the music <laughs> because I think that's really working for this show right very, now. Very social network-esque. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, I, what I want to see is I want to see the grittiness. I want to see them really dive in to the character. I, wa I do want to know more about her past though that actually giving a full origin story. And that's, I think, kind of the beauty of the show is that even though she's into this, the David Tennant character makes you want to know about her past. And I just want to see more of him because man, I, I don't get chills like that very often when it comes to, when it comes to villains this time I got chills. I can't wait to dive more into David Tennant's character. What I want to get out of the show is I think this would be the first, I watched a good amount. The only thing I've seen of David Tennant's really um, has been the doctor who stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, this is going to be exciting to see that really dark side of David Tennant that we rarely skip to see, at least. For these people who don't know much about his work, uh, like myself, or only has known him from a certain project. But going forward, you know, again, I like the fact that his character, the Purple Man, ties so much into Jessica Jones' character. He's can be, the, he can, I think he's going to be the Joker, you know, her version of the Joker. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, and people are going to probably hate me for this, but I think I'm going to go on a limb and say that David Tennant's character is going to be way better than Wilson Fisk in Daredevil. Oh, wow. I think it's going to be on that level, especially the, the creepiness factor. And I'm not saying that Vincent D'Onofrio did a bad job because I think it's well documented on the show that you and I both loved Wilson Fisk in Daredevil, but I think this one is going to take it to another level. Oh, exactly. But again, remember, there are two different characters, but it's going to be interesting because with Fisk, you get the strong man, the, the leader with, with Tenet. Strong character. and vulnerable, which was great, which exactly. is what was great about Fisk. But with Tenet, you're just going to get, I think, psychotic, and you're going to get somebody who's just likes to get in the minds of people Pure literally and just, and just rip things apart and, and cut wires and tie them places they don't, they shouldn't be going. Oh, definitely. You know, I mean, he's going to be the mischief kind of thing too. You know, it's, he's going to be very mischievous. He's going to be very evil and tormented. It's like Riddler meets Joker. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which uh, is going to be really cruel. Or and really again, cool. I, 
and again, you know, with Jessica, with Jessica Jones, I mean, it's good. It, uh, I think they nailed the casting with Kristen Ritter, and I'm, I, I'm, now I'm, I do too. Yeah, and 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 I'm going to be interested to see how they, you know, after season one ends, how they're going to do a thing with Luke Cage, like how they're going to, you know, because he's in this, he's he's going to be a, a good ro- big role in this. I want to see, hey, at the end of episode one. How are they going to lead into Luke Cage? And I want to see. I don't want it to be exactly. the typical. I don't want it to be the typical rides off on a motorcycle into the sunset kind of thing. And he has his own thing. I want it to be kind of something different. You know, this is going to be a. This is going to set up Luke Cage. Whereas Daredevil didn't set up Jessica Jones, but no. Jessica Jones is going to set up Luke Cage. And I think that, if anything, that well, by the end of Jessica Jones, we're going to know what direction Luke Cage is going to be headed. Exactly. Final thing I want to say about this, you know, we talked about just recently, just now, Jessica Jones sets up Luke Cage. I think Daredevil, given what we saw with, I believe it was Goliath, was who Stick was talking to in the, one of the episodes of the first season. Daredevil, I think, is going to set up Iron Fist. I agree. I totally agree. I think that's exactly what's going to happen, and that's why we're thinking maybe that's where the hand comes in. I mean, this is still a possibility. So you're kind of seeing the tea leaves come together a little bit from the Marvel Netflix shows, and then we'll see where they go with the Defenders when everything all comes together. But we're going to bring things together coming up next. You know we've got a boatload of nerd news waiting for you right here on Down and Nerdy. This is comic book writer Brendan Fletcher, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds. We go around the internet and see what's trending, because it's time for what, James? Nerd news! I think it's the first time I actually didn't leave you hanging on the news part. Good. Well done. Well done. done. Hooray me. And now, (laughs) uh, a story this week that we're going to start off with, of course, deals with Superman. However, it deals more with sci-fi's show that David Goyer is doing called Krypton. And Goyer came out and said that the sci-fi TV show, which, of course, even to this point, now was brought up last year, but... It hasn't been greenlit yet by Sci-Fi for casting or shooting a pilot yet, which is kind of interesting. That is interesting. Um, and also he announced that the show Krypton will be a prequel to Man of Steel. Not only that, but according to Goyer, it takes place 200 years before Man of Steel. Which, just like Gotham, means that there's no way in hell they'll ever catch up to where Man of Steel was. So you can put that idea right out of your head right now. If anything, I think this show, what it means is that it's going to take place... Or it's going to end, I think, with, you know, if it's a prequel to it, it'll probably end with the whole Zod going nuts and just, you know, destruction of Krypton. If they even get that far, I mean, that would be, they'd have to leapfrog to even get there. That's the thing. That's true. I mean, but again, 200 years before Man of Steel, remember, years could be different on Krypton. It could be like, you know. Yeah, that's true. It could be, you advance one, you go forward 10, you know what I'm saying? I mean, for all we know, every show is going to be a year. Yeah. For all we know. But, I mean... I mean, it's not it's not a bad thing, I don't think. I mean, even if we get, like, the dawn of Krypton kind of thing, I think well, that would be kind of cool. He says we kind of more centered around that, like, it's moons and stuff like that, too. So, I think they, the reason why they're saying it's so far, so, you know, far into the past, I think they want people to stop saying, when are we going to see Superman? When are we going to see Superman? And, again, it's the thing of, like, or when are we going to see baby Kal-El, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. You know, and, and this is weird because, remember, this is the first show, really, that's connected to the DC universe. Yeah, it's funny that they would choose this one. Yeah. To be the one that's connected. But again, we say connected, so loosely connected. I mean, again, right. they're never going to well, catch said, up. Well, they I remember when they first announced the series, they said that it was going to take more of a turn with Kal-El's grandparents and, like, his more the more elderly part of the Elf family. Right. So, I mean, you know, what's your take on this? I mean, really quick. I mean, it's it's interesting. I'm still I'm still interested in seeing it, but I think that this is gonna be, um, it's gonna be one of those things for one of those deep DC fans. I don't know if anybody outside of a hardcore DC or just Superman fan is gonna care as much about the show. And I think that's one of the reasons that they decided to put it on sci-fi. I mean, I'm interested, but I mean, we could have five, ten people listening to us right now going, "What are you talking about? I don't care." <clears throat> Before we move on to our next story, the only problem I or fear I have with Krypton is that it's just going to feel like another sci-fi, not just the channel, but just the genre in general. It's another sci-fi show. You know what I'm saying? Like or you're it's watching, just not going to go anywhere. Well, that, but I'm like, you're you know? watching. The last thing I want to do is watch a show called Krypton and just be like, it's not really, doesn't feel, 
you know, Superman yeah. or Krypton esque. You know what I'm saying? It just feels like I'm watching a show about another planet, pretty yeah, much. Exactly. But speaking of planets and galaxies, uh, another story that came out this week, actually yesterday, it was that Matthew McConaughey was offered the villain role in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and he turned it down. It's very interesting, too, because remember there was a lot of chatter about Matthew McConaughey wanting to get into the comic book movie realm, and it looked like Marvel was going to be his destination. There was a lot of chatter about that. And now all of a sudden, here's the opportunity for him to jump in, and he says no. Now, I'm not saying that he should just jump at whatever the first thing that comes along is and just do it, because that's ridiculous. But it's just very interesting that he would turn it down. What, what's your take? I mean, do you think that this is kind of a big deal, or do you think this is like a ho-hum, no big deal kind of thing? I don't think it's a ho I think it's. A, I mean, it's interesting, because I think I, I kind of have an idea of who they want him to play. I, I, I will get into that in a little bit, but I mean, you know, he's coming off, he did, last film he did really was uh, Interstellar, so I don't know if he wants to kind of not do two space movies at the same time, even though, you know, and the thing is, he's a villain, so it's like, how long of a run could he have outside of just the one movie, but, yeah. I mean, it's not the money, because the money would be there, because it's Matthew McConaughey, and it's, it's Marvel, you know, I mean, Bradley Cooper even said, you know, the amount he got to, pay, to play Rocket is more than, you know, his past two movies combined, you right. know, but I think that, with with uh, Matthew McConaughey, I think it's I think it's just another thing of like him turning down a role. I think, but I think who they wanted to play would have been Adam Warlock. Now I know people are saying, well, Adam Warlock was a good guy. Well, I say Adam Warlock because he was also known as Mag- Magus or Magus, uh, who is very evil, and yep. he's very he's the evil side of Adam Warlock. Now the only problem with Magus is that. He doesn't really appear until the whole Infinity Gauntlet thing happens. Now, Thanos has the gauntlet, but he doesn't have the gems. Magus takes more of a role when the gems actually are all part of the gauntlet, so I don't think we would see him until after or during Infinity War. Yeah, and not only that, but if you're Matthew McConaughey and things are going really good for you right now, aren't you going to be a little bit more choosy? And and again, wouldn't he want to wait for something that has more of a pop. I mean, I know he could probably take something like this and bring it to another level, yeah. but do, don't you really want to wait for that name to come up? Maybe he saw this, and now maybe he's thinking, well, you know, DC's got some stuff going on. They've still got some names that haven't been cast. Maybe that's a place that I could land. I mean, you know, I, I, from the article I read, really, they contacted his representatives. They had you know, no comment on it. So, I mean... We don't know. I mean, Lee Pace did a great job as Ronan, but it brings up a really interesting thing because I don't know much about. We, don't, we even after the first movie came out, we still don't know a lot about Guardians. We still don't know about, about much about the the big bads mm-hmm. they have. I mean, Ronan's not going to be there anymore because of, of course after what happened in the first movie. So I mean, it, it's weird because if you look in the collectors, uh, you know, before his whole office blows up, you see Adam Warlock's cocoon pretty much. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see, okay, will they introduce Adam Warlock? Will they, you know, will it bypass him being good, just have him being Magus and kind of have him working with Thanos? I don't know. Well, you got to um, have you got to have the bads before you get to Thanos. And the thing, well, that's the thing is, it's like you know, I thought about maybe he's Star-Lord's father, but I would think that, you know, him and Chris Pratt are close to the same age. I doubt they're going to put him in elder makeup. They're just going to cast somebody who's older, I would think, you know, or... Well, I mean, they do have options, too. I mean, it's not like Thanos doesn't have henchmen. Like, Proxima Midnight would have been a good choice. That would be a female villain they could use. You could still draw Nebula in somehow. I'm not saying make her the big bad, but, I mean, she's still there. Right. They have options. It's just, you know, what are you choosing to use at the time? And also, more casting news in terms of the Guardians of the Galaxy sequel, Palm Clementif has been cast for a mysterious role as well, so maybe she is... That villain you just mentioned. Yeah, maybe she is Proxima Midnight. That that would be a good choice. Maybe. I mean, she was an old boy as well. I mean, I didn't see old boy, so I can't tell how good yeah, I didn't see who she either. is. But again, maybe that's who she's going to be. We don't know. But moving on to our final uh, final story, James, and it deals with Indiana Jones. Now, Harrison Ford has you know broke his leg on Star Wars set, and he's just you know he's he's getting he's not going to be around for a long time. Not in movies, uh, anyway. Not in movies. At least doing very physical and demanding roles. So it found it kind of tickled my fancy when I saw that Frank Marshall, who was of course the producer on all the Indiana Jones films, pretty much came out and said, "quote We're not doing the Bond thing where we're going to call somebody else Indiana Jones. We had to figure this out." So pretty much, they're not going to recast Indiana Jones for the next movie. Now, here's my take on this. As I said, Harrison Ford isn't going to be around forever. He's not going to be acting forever. 
if you're not going to recast somebody after, of course, the abysmal Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, what's the point of making another one? Yeah, what are we what are we talking about here? I mean, is it going to be Indiana Jones and the Intensive Care Unit at this point? Because <laughs> how much, like you said, how much longer can you do this stuff? And I know there's stunt people and everything. I totally get that. Okay, I got it. But he still looks a certain age too. So how Indiana Jones ish? Can he really be Indiana Jones? I can watch the next two Indiana Jones things like Indiana Jones and the piping hot bowl of oatmeal. And then the next one after that's going to be Indiana Jones and the cancellation of Matlock. Indiana Jones and the liniment oil. I mean, (laughs) it's just, (laughs) and I love Indiana Jones. Okay. Don't get me wrong. And Harrison's done such a great job in in three movies, (laughs) Uh, but Indiana Jones and the bathing sponge. I mean, it just, it doesn't make sense. If you're not going to do a passing of the torch kind of deal, yeah. it doesn't make sense to do another one. It really doesn't. I mean, there's been talk of like, you know, we're not going to do, we're not going to do the whole mutt spinoff with his son. There's been talk where maybe one of his students kind of and that's fine. goes with him or does a spinoff with one of his students and that's fine. But again, it's just, I mean, after King of the Crystal Skull, why? You know what I'm saying? Like, like, do we really need... I'm, I mean, I'm sorry, but part of me really is saying, do we really need another Indiana Jones? And quite frankly, I mean, let's go bigger picture here. Do we have to remake every damn thing? No, we don't. Well, it's more I of, love Harrison Ford. Well, it's more of, do we need a sequel for everything? Does everything need a sequel? And it's, the answer yeah, is no. I mean, he's already doing Blade Runner, okay? Which I still think is a questionable decision, but of course, we're going to wait for trailers and scripts to come out and all kinds of stuff. We're not going to prejudge it, and I, I still think it's, it's weird that you've waited this long and you're going to do it now, but uh, I, he's doing that already. Do we really want to go back into Indiana Jones? I feel like there's got to be something else. Harrison Ford can do that's maybe more original or maybe he tags on to another, um, uh, like a serial type thing, you know, like not necessarily anything DC or Marvel, but like if they do uh, more Hunger Games movies, maybe he, he attaches himself in an older role to something like that. Maybe he's the new president after President Snow, who I'm assuming dies in this movie. I haven't read the book, so I don't know. That's not a spoiler, people. I legit don't know if he dies or not. So... Maybe that's something, he, maybe he latches on to another thing like that, but I mean, it's not like they're going to make another Ender's Game movie either. Exactly. Well, well, we don't have another story to tag on from that, so we're just going to leave it there with nerd news. But coming up next, we're going to dive into the sewers of New York City and the pages of IDW Comics, because we have the man himself behind Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for IDW. Mr. Tom Waltz is going to be joining us for a nice interview to talk about the heroes in the half shell. That's coming up next on Down and Nerdy. Hey, this is Robert Venditti, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, when Nick and I found out that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was one of the most popular Halloween costumes this year, we thought, hmm, who could we talk to this week? And it just jumped off the page since they just had their 50th issue come out. We've got senior writer and editor for IDW and writer of TMNT himself. It's Tom Waltz. Tom, how are you doing today? Good. How are you guys doing? Good. So, Tom, what's it been like coming off of that 50th issue? Man, it's been crazy. It's funny because actually this, this week we um, the 51st issue came out, and I, as nervous as I was for the 50th issue, I think I was even more nervous about the 51st because uh, obviously we hyped the 50th issue up a lot, and it was uh, very popular, uh, very successful, and then you're always worried how you're going to follow that up. But, but so far, it seems like uh, a few reviews I've read today and, and going on some of the fan sites, there's been positive reaction. Uh, but, I mean, overall, just the... For myself, Kevin Eastman, Bobby Kernow, all the artists, uh, Rhonda Patterson, who's been coloring since the beginning, it, it's been a fantastic ride. Um, we we had a plan. It's funny. We had a plan in place uh, to get to 50 from issue one, and uh, we pulled it off. I didn't know if we were going to. I was As it got closer, I was getting more and more horrified that, uh, that we might have... Uh, Kind of got ahead of ourselves, but we but we pulled it off, and and it was no small feat. But uh, I give uh, our editor Bobby Kernow all the credit in the world. He kept us all organized, kept us reined in, and and we got it out there to the world. It's amazing that you were looking that far ahead into the series, and that's actually kind of refreshing to hear. But why was this the right time to shake things up and kind of get a fresh start for the heroes in the half shell? Well, you know, obviously, fifty is one of those kind of magic numbers that stands out. Uh, you know, you're at the half. I guess what you call the half century point. So it 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 seemed like the kind of thing we could you know hype around. You know, not only was the story kind of progressing to the point where where we wanted to do the shake up the the issue number chronologically was just exciting. Um, but I think 
it's it's one of those things where like, like you said, we had a plan since the beginning, so we were we were really catering our arcs and and designing our arcs around the idea that at fifty this would happen, um, and then hoping that that it would be the culmination of all these, these storylines that we were building over the years, but a, a good jumping on point for for new fans who you know they might they might. Um, learn about the hype about issue 50, be curious, pick it up, and it'd be good enough and important enough for them to say, oh, wow, I, you know, I haven't been reading this, I've been missing something good, I want to I want to jump on board. And so far we've found that that seems to be happening. Hopefully it'll continue because we've got, you know, more exciting storylines and a lot of fallout from, you know, all that stuff that we've built up to and then brought crashing down in issue 50. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this goes, but I, I'm excited for the future. And it's funny, I, I would say it's weird to say that now because when I say I'm excited for the future, I'm excited for the plans we have through issue 100, and I remember once upon a time saying I'm excited for the future, and we were talking about issue 50 starting it when we were at issue number one. Wow! So it's wow! Crazy. Yeah, it's crazy how things go. But I mean, issue 50 was phenomenal. I mean, the whole series has been great, Tom. And you know, as a writer and somebody who, of course, has been with the Turtles since issue one back in 2011, what to you is the most important aspect of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? You just gotta nail as a writer. Oh, family. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, obviously, I mean, an easy answer might be the brotherhood, but I think just across the board, it's family. And I think that's one of the things that that we, from the very beginning, made sure we stay true to. At the core, the turtles is, is really it's, it's a family story, um, and it's not just you know the turtles and Splinter. That, but in, in our case, we've got you know Karai and, and Shredder, uh, Kitsune to a to a certain extent. We've got April and her parents. And Casey and Hun, who's his father, all all this is about about family issues and family problems, you know. And and the funny thing is, I've always I've always believed in this that the the stories themselves have to revolve around the characters and have to revolve around things that are relatable to the readers. You know, not many of us. I've never been a ninja, and I've never you know gone out and fought with swords in the alleys. And but I've I've had sisters and and brothers and, and moms and dads. So if that part of the story is something I can relate to and that part of the story speaks to me, then all the superhero stuff, all the you know, sci-fi stuff and, and mystical stuff, it's just, that's just icing on top. It's part of the setting that at its core we have to tell a story that when, when people read it and, and they see it, they say, I, I get that. And most people won't get, you know, laser beam eyes, but they'll get, I don't know, maybe, you know, in the case of uh, Casey, some people may have had abusive relationships with their parents. In the case of, I don't know, um, the Turtles and Splinter, this idea that, uh, you know, without your family, you're lost. And so it's, it's, it's something that, that from the very beginning we, we keyed in on because I think that's what's, what the Turtles have keyed on all the way back to the days when Kevin and Peter first uh, created them. It's about family and, and, and you know, and friendship. Oh, exactly. And I mean, you know, I love that you brought up both Splinter and Shredder because, you know, a big relationship and rivalry since TMT's inception back in 1984, you know, it has been the one between Shredder and Splinter and their past. So what is it about their relationship that just fascinates you the most? You know, it's funny. It's, it's one of those the things where you, it would be so easy to say, you know, Splinter is good and Shredder is bad and it's this black and white relationship. But in our case, especially Splinter comes from the Foot Clan. So, you know, Splinter's not this, this innocent guy that, that uh, was, you know, like this, I don't know, Shaolin monk that never did wrong. He was a, he was a ninja. He was a killer. He, he was a, basically a, like a, I guess, an assassin for hire back in, in Vield, Japan. So in a lot of ways, he and Shredder are no different. Um, I think in what we try to delve in here is that as time passed, Splinter, or, or you know, his real name is Hamato Yoshi, went on a path of self-discovery that I think was enlightening, and in a lot of ways um, brought him over to, I guess, what you might call the good side of things. Whereas Shredder took a path that I guess corrupted him. You know, the power overwhelmed him. Whereas I think he saw the power as a means to an end. Splinter sees the power as something that can be used to not just benefit himself, but benefit others. And and so I think just kind of that, that dark and light, you know, it's, it's the old, I guess, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Darth Vader relationship where it's, there's a lot of gray areas in there. And, and it's funny because if you look at, say, Star Wars, for example, I've always felt like, you know, and I know a lot of other fans do too, 
in the end, Anakin Skywalker is the hero. Yep. You know, he, mm-hmm. he is the person that comes through, but look at the dark path he had to follow. And so, you know, in, in some ways that, that kind of inspired us where, in our case, you know, Shredder, he was corrupted, but there are a lot of, you know, external external components to that that, that were playing against him. You know, some of them obviously uh, were arcane and mystical, but ultimately, in the end, especially in, as we show in issue 50, everybody has to, to answer to others and answer to themselves. And I, and I thought we, I thought that was something that we handled well. I was really happy with how that turned out. That was a scene that was in my head for many, many years. And when I sat down to write it, you know how you, you envision something and then you, you sit down to uh, put it together, you worry that maybe it's not going to be what I, I thought it was going to be. But mm-hmm. in the end, especially with, you know, the beautiful artwork from Mateus and the colors from Rhonda, it turned out to be exactly what I wanted it to be, which was, was not only just a, a moment of reckoning, but a moment of redemption. Definitely. We're talking to Tom Waltz, senior staff writer of IDW Publishing and, of course, editor as well. And he's one of the writers on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles there. Speaking of issue 50, I think in issue 50, you had one of the most shocking deaths, I think, in comics, period, when Shredder and Shredder Orokusaki dies at the hands of Splinter. Now, I know this might seem like an obvious question, but it's the Turtles, especially after what happened with Donatello. So I've got to ask you, can you tell us definitively, have we seen the last of Rokusaki in this series? Definitively? This is comics, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ironically, that's kind of what I was hoping you were going to say. But, you know, I, I will say this. Um, I think what we have in store, it's certainly not going to be a, a short play. So there's, there's a long play here for this death. It's not like tomorrow we're going to make sure there's a, a new shredder or shredder returns. And, and if he does return, and I'm not saying he will, but if he does, I, I think we have a very um, exciting plan for storylines in the future. Um, we've kind of hinted at, at things with Shredder, shredder in his own, uh, you know, he had the one-shot story. And we've also, you know, kind of played this idea that there's a supernatural at work here. But I'm, I like to think that whatever plan we have, you know, just like his death in issue 50, if, if we are able to pull it off, it'll be just as surprising. But um, in the meantime, we've got a lot more going on um, outside of that relationship. I mean, there's, there's new bad guys we brought in with issue 50, uh, ish, I'm sorry, issue 51, and um, some of the other uh, storylines, including the Pantheon, that we've been building over the last year or so that will uh, finally come to fruition. So um, I'm excited. You know, we haven't seen the end of Krang yet, nor have we seen the, uh, the end of some other uh, bad guys that have kind of come and gone throughout our, our, our run. But, um, yeah, Shredder, Shredder's always out there uh, looming. We just don't know if he'll ever win or where he'll strike. Well, I want to talk about, you know, you talk about some other characters and maybe some other alternative motives. You know, in issue 51, we see that uh, Kitsune has a certain plan in motion. Now, without spoiling anything, how will her plan play out over the next few issues? And what does it mean for both the clan and the Turtles? Well, one of the things that, that I think we've been able to do so far is kind of keep the, the Pantheon both in the forefront and the background. Um, we just had a recent miniseries uh, that was... Uh, really fun called Casey in April and they ran into some of the Pantheon which was the Rat King and a, a more benevolent member of that family and again we go back to families and turtles and even the bad guys have families uh, whose name was Akka and that that miniseries I think um, fans might want to pick up that habit because it's important to some of the storyline coming up I think what we're going to find is one of the things we show in issue 51 is that, that Kitsune is under what, what we're calling house arrest in the foot headquarters now with Splinter in charge of the foot. And I think deep down he knows she's up to something. Um, he's had a past with her. I mean, he, he's, he, she's from feudal Japan. He was from feudal Japan. So he, he knows fully well what she's capable of and what she's done before. So, but at this point, he's, he's not certain what it is, so he's just trying to keep her in front of him. Um, but I think what we're going to find as the story unfolds is that some of these events that were shocking to the Turtles, for example, and their, and their allies um, may, not have, may not have been as shocking to Katsuni as she is playing. Now, as someone who's been along with this series since issue one with IDW, how strange was it when you go to write that first panel with Leonardo leading the Foot Clan into battle? 
You know what? That that was actually pretty bizarre. You know, and and actually that was a I wrote it a couple different ways, and Bobby read through my scripts, and he had some really good suggestions on how to play that one out. And in the end, I really like how it, how it ended up um, looking, and 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 the pace was just right. But it was pretty bizarre, and, and more so because you know a lot of people would think, well, you know, he. He was Dark Leo at one point, and he was in, in the Foot Clan, but I always said that really doesn't count because he was brainwashed. You know, this is for real. But one of the things we're really trying to show, and we started with issue 51, and, and you'll see that as, as we progress in the story arc, is that even Leo, who's about as loyal as he can be to his father, is, um, is not comfortable with the situation. You know, he'll follow orders and he'll do what he's told, but as, as time passes, we're going to see that the Foot Clan is still the Foot Clan, and power, and no matter whose hands it is, it, it's in, tends to corrupt. And that's something that we're really going to play with, not just with, with Splinter and, and the Foot Clan, but with some other elements uh, that surround the, the Turtles right now. Uh, that's kind of our theme moving forward, is um, this idea that, that power corrupts. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, you talk about the family and not sitting well. Michelangelo didn't sit well with him at all when the events unfolded in issue 50, and he kind of takes off. So just a couple things on that. Are we going to see what his mindset going forward in future issues? And was his frustration in leaving, was that kind of like a foreshadowing of how you thought fans might have felt after reading this issue as well, long-time fans? Oh, yeah, yeah, and it's funny because it's funny you say that. I read a review today or, or something on one of the forums where where that was exactly what somebody was saying, that, you know, Mikey Mikey is us right now, a lot of the fans, where he just he can't stomach this idea that the, the Turtles and, and Splinter are, are working or actually, in this case, running the Foot Clan. Um, we'll definitely, we're, this is definitely, one of the things we've done um, since the very beginning of the series, starting with Raphael, then uh, Leo and the Dark Leo um, arcs, and then Donatello, obviously, recently, is is kind of spending a lot of time focusing on one of the turtles. You know, we, we everybody's included, but there's one turtle that kind of is is the uh, star, if you will, for those those arcs. And this is Mikey's turn, um, and Mikey's going to go on a pretty rough journey. Um, and what he's going to find is that the grass isn't always necessarily greener on the other side. And in the end, I think what we're going to show is that Mikey is going to grow up a little bit and he's going to have to make, make some decisions, some um, personal decisions and some family decisions. But to get there, to get to those decisions, he's going to have, you know, a, a number of adventures with and without his family. Uh, we have some stuff coming up with the Mutanimals that, that I'm really excited about. Um, we've, we've been uh, getting some artwork in and it's, it's pretty neat to see him uh, kind of hanging out with Mondo Gecko and Pigeon Pete especially, whom I love. Uh, so uh, I think fans are going to really like that, and, and we're going to get to, to kind of see, I think, the party do evolve a little bit now. And Tom, what I love, I mean, your writing is just fantastic. I love your writing, and what I love about your the series overall is the overall tone and nature of it, as it's a more mature, and even in the third act of issue 50... It- it's sort of reminiscent of the 1990s film, that last third act in the 90s film. Uh, how much influence did that the films have going into issue 50, especially that last scene with Shredder's death happening? You know what? Everything that's come before is a huge influence, including the films. And I'm not even excluding the, the recent film. Any, anything that's, that's true-related, we, we have this huge advantage of being able to just cherry-pick from. That's what I call it. We just be cherry-picking. We go out, we find things that we like. Um, and we and we find a way to work them into our stories. Um, we don't do it unless we feel like it'll matter and, and, and that it'll work. But in the case of, of that third act, I, I want to give a lot of credit to Bobby for that one because I, I had always had this idea in my mind that there would be the, the, the team of the seppuku and, and the, the moment, the real personal moment between um, Splinter and uh, Shredder. But it was Bobby who kind of brought it back around to a rooftop battle, which is very iconic for the Turtles. And and he was he was really adamant when we started putting this together that let's make sure this last battle takes place on the rooftop 
and it's so much better for it, you know. And, and, that's, and that's what I like about this is there's so much turtle history to pull from. We're not all, not all of us are always remembering everything, but enough of us together remember enough to, to I think, pull off those iconic moments. And, uh, yeah, definitely the, the, the movie itself is something that we've drawn from. Uh, there's a few few lines coming up in uh, some of the stuff we've been doing that, that actually just pulled directly from the movie because there, there's, so many, there's so many fun moments. Well, Tom, before we let you go, we know that you're also an editor at IDW and involved in a lot of other projects. So aside from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, what are some of the other upcoming projects that you're just really excited about? You know what? I, um, I've been editing the Ghostbusters comics here for quite a while, um, and they've been very successful, and it's just been one of my favorite things that I've done since I've been at IDW. And, and one thing that's happening, we just got done uh, putting together our first Ghostbusters annual, which is 48 pages full of um, work from our, our normal team, which is Eric Burnham, Dan Schoening, and Luis uh, Antonio Delgado, but also some guest artists have stepped in to do some fun uh, one-page stories. So that annual should be coming out, I believe, in a couple weeks. Or I know it's, it's supposed to be out um, in November. And then following that, in January, we do our third volume of our ongoing series that we've been we've had at, at IW for a while now, and we're going to call that one Ghostbusters International. So you're going to see our, our Ghostbusters team traveling all over the world, which is kind of kind of new for the Ghostbusters to, to break away from New York. Um, also, this this week we've had a very successful launch of our Back to the Future comic. That's one I'm editing. Uh, we were able to get the first issue out on Back to the Future Day. Uh, we're we're heavily involved with Bob Gale, the create one of the creators of Back to the Future, on that. And I I suspect we're going to have a, a another successful run similar to Turtles and Ghostbusters with Back to the Future. It's again an iconic brand, uh, something that has a huge fan base, and we just got some really really talented people, including Bob, working on that. Other than that, I just finally we it took a long time, a lot longer than we thought. I had a creator own book with uh, my artistic uh, comrade Casey Maloney called The Last Fall. Um, that was a five-issue uh, sci-fi military drama that that I created that we just finished the fifth issue. It should be hitting stores, I think, next week, and then that'll be followed by a trade. Uh, the book was delayed many, many months, so there's been a long break in between issues. So what I'm really excited about is finally getting that, that last issue out there and then, then the trade paper back in the stores because I, it's one of those stories I feel will work really well as a collection, um, and I'm hoping we get to do more with that later on. Um, we'll do it much quicker this time. And then other than that, uh, I just finished writing a video game story that that's all I can say, but I'm really anxious for the public to... Uh, to uh, see it when, it when it's available, but that's all I can say. Nice. That's pretty awesome, Tom. So final final couple questions. This is a two-parter. Where can people find you on social media? And when you played the Ninja Turtle video games, like the old ones, the NES and the SNES, who was the one turtle you had to play as? All right. So on social media, I'm on, I'm on Facebook. You can just search my name, uh, Tom Waltz, and uh, it's, I'm at Tom Waltz on Twitter. Those are usually where you'll find me. As far as the video games are concerned, you know what? I don't know if I ever just would pick anybody. Probably, uh, I, I kind of like swinging a nunchuck, so I would probably do that just for the fighting aspect of it. The swords are cool, but I think just hearing the clunk of the nunchucks is probably my, my favorite thing. But And it's funny, that, that question kind of ties into one I'm all often asked. Um, people will say, well, who's your favorite turtle? Who, who's your favorite turtle uh, to write or, or in general? And I always say, you know, I love them all. And it's not really a cop-out answer because at my age now, in, in my mid-40s, I think I, I find myself relating to Splinter more as a, as a dad mm-hmm. and, an old, mm-hmm. and an old guy than I do to, to the young teenage turtles. <laughs> so times change. <laughs> <laughs> totally understandable. Well, if you want to catch up with the Ninja Turtles and if you're looking for a good jumping in place, issue 51 is definitely something that you could do with that. That's available now at your local comic shops and, of course, idwpublishing.com. The Ghostbusters annual that Tom mentioned, November 25th. You can also pre-order that at idwpublishing.com. And he is everywhere. He's involved in all the comics at IDW pretty much. Tom Waltz, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us today. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you having me. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Turtles in the 
Jam Show. Total Power. You. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a great interview. What a great time with Tom Waltz of TMNT and IDW. Just, I mean, an open. This, uh, it, it, my mind blew when he said, We got plans for like, I know I want to do up to issue 100, and we knew we wanted yeah. to do issue 50, we were on issue one. I'm like, Holy shit! That's crazy, but it also shows a huge amount of confidence. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course it's Turtles. I mean, it's not like you're thinking it's going to get canceled or anything, but still the confidence to know that by issue 50, we want to do this kind of thing. I just thought that was so crazy. And the fact that now they're looking towards 100 and the way 50 ended, I can't even imagine what they've got planned for 100. Oh my God. But it's, I mean, also talking about some of his other stuff. He's got, you know, the creator on comic coming out and he's got, you know, the whole thing with the video game that he can't talk about yet, but we want to have him on to talk about that when he can. But I mean, it's just that guy. If you go on the IEW, we're talking about this during the break. If you go on the whole IEW website and look him up and you look up his credits, it's like, I'm um, just, just, yeah. It's, it's as long as, you know, every, you know, government document known to man. Except it's not redacted. You get to actually see everything. Yeah, you can see it. Everything that he's worked on. It's, it's ridiculous. It's really borderline ridiculous how much great stuff that he has. And, and seriously, when we tell you that you can pick up issue 51, and when they say it at IDW, and kind of start fresh if you haven't read any of the previous issues. Uh, this is a good way where you can start fresh and not be lost. I'd still go back and read issue 50 because oh, there's some important stuff there and you're going to want to see it anyway. But oh, um, but definitely if this is where you're looking, if you're because we've talked about this on the show before, like, ah, you know, we'd really like to get into this series, but we're already five. It's already five issues in. It's kind of too late. This is your entry point for Turtles. If you're not reading TMNT, the ongoing series, this is your spot to jump in. Exactly, and that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Don Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to IEW and Tom Wallace for coming on the show this week and just talking to us about Turtles and a bunch of other great things. And again, you can follow them on Twitter and go out and get Turtles because it's a great series. I mean, they, again, issue 50, you can just dive right into that. Also, 51, but go back to 50 because, as James said, there's just some major, major things you just don't mm-hmm. want to miss out on in issue 50, and it's a, a great, great book. Um, but also, we're on social media as well, and here's the thing. We're all over social media. We're on Facebook.com slash DonNerdy, but mostly on Twitter at DonNerdy757. We're tweeting a lot more uh, through our through our Twitter page. Also, I'm at Merc one arm And here's the one thing, too, a quick before James, before you announce your Twitter account. Look at – this is why you want to follow us on Twitter because there are certain times we tweet people, James, I, or the page itself. Mm-hmm. We tweet people. They, you, they might be guests or future guests on the show for that week or the following week. So – if you want to know, get an idea of who we might be having on the show a certain week, pay attention to what we tweet. And, right. and from there, you can say, oh, my God, they're going to have this person on or that person on. And it just gets you amped up even more. So, again, follow us on Twitter. Now, with that being said, Mr. Witham, what is your Twitter account that the people can follow you at? I'm at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. And don't forget, we're also online, downandnerdypodcast.com. And you can get access to our Amazon store while you're there. So if you want to buy some of the comics that we're talking about, you want to do that digitally through Amazon, you can do that there. Plus, there's a This Week section on our website where you can find out everything that's going to be on the show that week as far as nerd news, what we're reviewing for This Week in Geektainment. Not only that. We've got more reviews of comics up there. You know, we talk about what we're reading on the show. You get more of what we're reading on the website as we review two other comics on the pod. I mean, on the website. Exactly. So if you go to downerypodcast.com, there's a reviews tab, and it's broken into two sections: what else James is reading, and what else I'm I'm reading. We both do different comics each week. Uh, this week I did Marvel's Darth Vader number ten. What did you do this week, James? Uh, this week I decided to go with the dynamite route and go Bond, James Bond number one. Oh, you sly bastard. Yeah, just like 007 himself. <laughs> yes. But uh, again, you know, thanks to Tom Wells for coming on. Hit us on social media. Again, our Amazon store, you get a free 30-day trial to Amazon Prime if you sign up there through us. So again, you know, do that. It helps support the show and us as well. So with that being said, I leave you with this, as I do every week, nerds. Practice safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.